Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are excited that you've joined us today. We're ready to get started with some amazing and damn interesting links. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Moisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This comes from the Daily Beast, and the title is The Kentucky Miner Who Scammed Americans by Claiming He Was Hitler and Plotting Revolt with Spaceships. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is quite the headline. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, about a mail scam that was conducted in 1945. Just months after Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his bunker, Mm -hmm. there were rumors that he had actually survived with his mistress, Ava Braun, and escaped the country and was hunkering down somewhere. Like, people spotted him at neo-Nazi gatherings in Colombia, a (laughs) U-boat in Argentina, or with a quote-unquote barely legal girlfriend in Brazil. Uh, Some American papers cited rumors that he had taken to digging tunnels in the mountains of southeastern Kentucky. Kentucky. Always where you would want to go if you're a disgraced dictator is Kentucky. I mean, I've heard about like (laughs) South America and like either Argentina or Chile as being Mm -hmm. kind of like a hot outpost for Nazi. Escaped. Yeah. Right. Right. Like that was kind of a stronghold. But Kentucky, maybe they're just mountain folk. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously there's little to no evidence of this. But by 1947, a Gallup poll actually found that 45% of Americans believed that Hitler had survived. (laughs) And among them were a group of disgruntled German descendants scattered across the country who for several months had actually been corresponding with a man who called himself Furrier Number 1. And I didn't misspeak there. (laughs) It's actually spelled... F-U-R-R-I-E-R number one. (laughs) Hitler was a furry. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) So in hundreds of letters mailed between 1946 and 1956, Furrier number one explained that despite the misspelling of his title, he was Adolf Hitler. And as it turned out, he and Braun had both survived and had set up a camp in Kentucky to plot a new revolt to take over the U.S., and then the world, and finally, outer space. Of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people bought this. They they believed it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hitler's ambitions, I guess, went to space, and so people just wanted to go there. But he made all these promises, so one of the things he was telling people is that Hitler and his gang of 36,000 German dissidents were actually hard at work digging tunnels to Washington, D.C. in order to aid their revolution. And when he wasn't underground, Hitler apparently got around by way of invisible cab. Yes. And <laughs> together, his huge armies of soldiers and scientists had built 116 secret factories across Kentucky and Idaho to develop a atomic bombs, and, quote, invisible spaceships, which made no sound, unquote. I think if you're going to go in all in on a con, you got to go all in. Like, I, I yeah. respect that. I feel like he owned it. Or, or like, <laughs> this is the longest pitch for a direct-to-video movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he conned all these people into believing it, but, like, what was he getting out of it? Did they give him money, or was it just the joy of the con? <laughs> yeah, so it was the money. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, usually yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. So everything was going to plan, but Furrier number one needed help in the form of these generous contributions to his cause, actually. All so right. mm-hmm. by 1956, the faux furrer had actually collected close to $15,000 in 1956 money. So adjusted for inflation, that's 
$140,000. So in exchange for this financial support, he actually offered prominent positions in the new regime, like the titles of uh, Furrier number two and number three, whereas smaller contributors would be thanked with royal palaces and diplomat virgins, which I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, he he let the creative juices flow and came up with Furrier number two. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's evidence throughout this article that the guy seems pretty fun in his own way. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, on August 11th, 1956, uh, Furrier number one was arrested and charged with three federal counts of using the mail to defraud people. Uh, It turned out that he was not Hitler, but a, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) He was actually a 61-year-old African-American coal miner and part-time Baptist preacher named William Henry Johnson. A court witness described Johnson as a tall, full-faced man with a strong, convincing voice, and he'd been duping would-be interstellar neo-Nazi conquerors for a decade. Wow. I mean, doing the Lord's work. And by the way, what does a full (laughs) face actually describe? I don't know. I think he just, some people have strong faces. Like a round face, I always imagine. Like a Uh, a big moon cantaloupe looking thing. Okay. All right. (laughs) I'm assuming. It's interesting that actually very little has been published about Will Johnson, despite the ridiculousness of the story. He's been mentioned in a couple almanac-style books and databases and some blogs and occasional tweets. Kevin McQueen actually wrote a book called More Offbeat Kentuckians in 2004, <laughs> and he mentioned Will Johnson, and while trying to do the research, he actually reached out to the Kentucky State Police Archives and the FBI, who told him that they didn't have any record of whether Johnson was convicted or even if he what? went to trial. But the Daily Beast writers did some digging in the archives of various magazines and journals and found that he did go to trial and he was convicted. After his arrest in August of 1956, the Middleborough Daily News reported that he was detained on a $2,500 bond in the county jail in Pineville, Kentucky. They had a brief article titled, Man Disclaims He Is Hitler, uh, which said (laughs) that Johnson had pleaded guilty but denied orchestrating the scheme for personal benefit. Instead, he claimed that he was a private detective working to track down a ring of subversives seeking to set up a new government here, so like a double cross. At the hearing, he elaborates on his defense a little bit, and he held up a shiny new detective badge, as the paper wrote, and told the court that he had been trying to break this case so he could turn it over to the FBI. (laughs) So generous of him to do all that pre-work. Oh, absolutely. So it was actually a postal inspector who played a pivotal role in actually cracking the real case. And he had told the court that he had first heard of the scam a year before, after the death of a G.A. Huber, who was a 70-year-old stonemason in Bristol, Virginia, which was a small border city that extends across state lines into Bristol, Tennessee. When Huber's relatives were going through the mason's belongings, they had actually found money orderings totaling at least $4,000 and nearly 200 of Johnson's letters in his shack. So basically, this guy died and his family realized, oh no, he was being scammed for the last couple of years of his life. Let's go figure out who that dude was. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I feel like if I were the family, I'd be like, let's just call this one. (laughs) 
done. Yeah. But, maybe, you know. maybe don't let dad's legacy be he was scammed by Nazi space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was such so, an imaginative premise. I mean, who wouldn't get sucked into that? It's like a Nigerian prince approaching you, right? Yeah, it, it is very enthralling, I guess, if you're a Nazi. <laughs> it makes old people spending all their money on QVC in the last couple of years of their life no. maybe not look so bad, you know? There's yeah. worse ways you could blow your money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but so, we don't we don't know if he went to jail or because he was convicted, but did he actually get punished? Yes. So one of the key pieces that ended up in his conviction was actually the use of handwriting experts, which I didn't realize they had back in the 1950s. But it turns out that the post office was familiar with Johnson, and he actually landed himself in probation for a different mail fraud conviction where he had posed as an attorney and taught a recently remarried widow how to forge records and reinstate her unmarried widow checks in exchange for a cut of the profits. So Johnson did ultimately make a handwritten confession once these two cases were tied together. And he did try to claim that he had graduated from a Chicago Secret Service Correspondence School. (laughs) So, like, this guy is going all the way down into it. But eventually he confesses and he writes this handwritten confession note where he agrees to confess if the case details won't be published in the press. But the justice can't guarantee that, so he ultimately refuses, and he is sentenced to three years of time in a federal prison for each count, but to be served concurrently. So actually relatively lenient. Yeah, and if none of it went into the press at the time effectively, then as soon as he got out, he could just start back up again. Because that's what people yeah. like this do. They don't be like, oh, okay, I got caught. I'll never try again. Right, right. They just learned how to optimize in the next iteration. Yeah. So after the trial did end, and I assume after his conviction and time in prison, he never showed up in any local papers again. Hmm. And uh, since then, his birth certificate, death certificate, marriage certificate, nor obituary have ever been found. Yeah, Whoa. he just changed his name. He's that's in just- space, yeah. <laughs> guys. Of course he's in well, space That's now. true. That's true. I, I was wrong. He might have actually been telling the truth the whole time and now he's in space (laughs) oh yeah that's a great point (laughs) next link next Next link. link all right warren buffett we all know and love this legendary investor they call him the oracle of omaha he's made a huge fortune just by finding good investments getting them while they're low selling them when they're high yeah super rich guy Super rich guy. He's been in this business for a really long time, but it's never too late to pull a fast one on the big dogs. And it looks like a German company has apparently conned him out of 643 million euros. Whoa. Um, According to The Guardian, um, it's an article by Philip Alterman. They're thinking he may have paid over four times too much for a firm that is now being investigated for fraud. So this company is called Wilhelm Schultz. They are a family-run manufacturer of stainless steel. They're based in Western Germany. And this was kind of a what the article is calling a rare foray for Warren Buffett. Usually, family-run companies are not normally kind of his thing, but... He took a chance and it did not pay off because apparently an <laughs> exactly. anonymous tip off by a whistleblower, and this was in 2017, said, uh, you may not have bought what you think that you bought because in reality, the company he had just purchased was struggling and at risk of bankruptcy. So after about two to three years of arbitration here in New York, they ruled that the German company had systematically led investors astray in the run up to the purchase and then tried to cover its tracks afterwards. It was a 132 page ruling that noted, quote, this is not a closed case. The evidence strongly points to fraud and there is little in the record to suggest otherwise. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd have to do a really long con to get away with that because companies are investigated and vetted pretty significantly before any kind of acquisition or merger. You would definitely think so, especially with a buyer of the size and with the history and experience and track record of Warren Buffett and all of his accolades. But internal documents cited by a German newspaper suggest that some of the employees inflated the company's EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization, by scanning in letterheads of third companies and photoshopping them to create fake orders and invoices. Wow. Um, (laughs) The courts or the arbitration says at least 47 business deals were completely fabricated. Did these companies by any chance have their addresses listed in space? (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was just making an investment, right? And if he gives 800 million euros, you never know what it's going to look like once Hitler is in space. That's That's right. Very true. Well, and and (laughs) to be fair, like 800 million euros, it's a lot to you and me, but to Warren Buffett, it's not that much. I mean, he can afford it. It's true. Yeah, it's it's true. It's the Delta, I think, is what they're going after right now. So basically, the New York Arbitration Court said that this German business is really not worth any more than $157 And so what they're saying is that you German company need to pony up the difference of 643 million euros because that's what your company was paid for. Yeah, but surely they can't. I mean, if they could come up with that money, they wouldn't have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, it's it's not over yet because the former proprietors of the Schultz Group have rejected the allegations. In a statement, they said, quote, we are disappointed by the outcome of the arbitration procedure and consider its outcome wrong. We outright reject the allegation of fraud. So they have now filed a complaint against the ruling with a federal court for the Southern District of New York, and they say they're confident they can show Buffett's company was not financially damaged through the purchase of Wilhelm (laughs) Schultz. But I know they're also being prosecuted in Dusseldorf for forging documents and falsifying balance sheets. So this is far from over, but I hope Warren Buffett and all investors have learned a little bit more about how to look at what you're investing in. And is it really an investment? Yeah, it's a little sad to think that somebody of Warren Buffett's caliber could be taken in by basically a 12-year-old with Photoshop like that. Yeah. That yeah. seems like you would be a little more involved. I mean, at least bring Hitler and spaceships into it, like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, this is ongoing. We never know where this is going to end up. And to be fair, it sounded like there was a lot of 12-year-olds with Photoshop involved. So Right. That's just more than one. That's right. Exactly. It could have been like a delegation thing. You know, it's a family company, <laughs> little junior. Hey, we need you to get involved with the business. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. And now we have an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next link. Well, I learned a new word this week. I want to share it with you guys. Uh, what do you think a glaciologist studies? Glaciers. Glaciers? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. But it's Yay! a fun word to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too complicated to figure out. But I like ologist words that are very, very specific. Like I once yes. knew a woman who told me she was a streamologist. Because she only studied fish that lived in streams. I get it. Yeah, it's fresh water. It's flowing water. It's not stagnant. I mean, if Animal Crossing has taught me anything, is that only certain (laughs) fish are found in certain environments. (laughs) That's right. Well, this article is called Herd of Fuzzy Green Glacier Mice Baffles Scientists. And it's a little bit of a misnomer. The glacier mice are actually balls of green moss. They honestly look like like green tribbles from Star Trek. They're just these (gasps) fluffy little football-shaped balls. And they've been around for a while, but not a whole lot has been known about them. They were first described in the 1950s by an Icelandic researcher who noted with irony that rolling stones can gather moss. Ah. Uh, yeah. But it turns out there actually is no stone at the center at all. They're solid moss, and they're thought to form around some sort of small impurity like a bit of dust, kind of the same way a pearl forms. 
Because oh. uh, there's not huh. a lot of stuff up on glaciers. You know, what right. are you going to build your moss ball around? But generally, they haven't been really a subject of study. They've just sort of like, oh, it's a cool phenomenon. Glaciologists find them really cute, right? That's why they call them glacier mice. They like them a mm-hmm. lot. But they have just now started to do some studies on them, and they found some really, really cool stuff. So first of all, different species of moss can form them. It doesn't seem to be a sort of genetic tendency of one particular species. Lots of different species of moss can form them. They've been observed in Alaska, Iceland, Svalbard, and South America. But then other glaciers just do not have them at all. So they're really not certain what the perfect conditions are for these things to form. And generally, they just sort of form in these little herds on sort of flattish parts of the glacier, and they just kind of roll around a little bit. But somebody got the clever idea to see, hang on a second, they're definitely rolling around a little bit. Let's measure and sort of establish a map of how they move. And here's the Mm -hmm. crazy thing. They move not randomly and individually. They move together as a herd. Whoa. Yeah. So (laughs) the way they figured this out, some researchers from the University of Idaho, they went out there and they marked them with these little wires with kind of colored bead patterns on them. So they could identify specific ones. And then they came back each day and sort of tracked where they had gone for over two months. And what they found was that they move about an inch a day, which is enough for all sides of the moss to get sunlight. Right. So they're clearly basically moving Hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And the initial assumption was like, okay, yeah, the wind is blowing them. Right. These are light little balls of plant matter. They can easily be blown by the wind. But in fact, they cross-referenced it with meteorological records And it wasn't the wind. They would often go against the wind. They would go uphill. And consistently, they all moved together. They said they would all be heading west for a few days. And then suddenly they would swing south for a little while. (gasps) And they could not figure out, and they still can't figure out, what's the impetus for these things to do what they're doing? You know, they compared it against sun records, thinking like, oh, well, it's a plant, so it's turning towards the sun, but it didn't match up with that. There's a sort of known phenomenon where they often end up on the top of a little pedestal of ice because the moss will insulate the ice beneath it. And so if there's any kind of melting, the stuff around it will flow away and it'll end up on this little pedestal. And then at some point, those pedestals will break and they're like, oh, okay, so they're all sort of breaking in the same direction, but they confirmed that wasn't the case. And ultimately, they don't know. One climate scientist said, I think that probably the explanation is somewhere in the physics of the energy and the heat around the surface of the glacier, but we haven't quite got there yet. Another one said, I'm still kind of baffled. Have they explored sentience at all? I don't know. I I think they're maybe working on that, but they don't want to jump in unless they are really, really sure. But but yeah, I mean, one thing they can all agree on is they're super cute. Everybody loves the glacier mice. And they, one of the guys who did the tagging study with the little bits of wire, he said, you know, our study was done after two months, but I've continued to go back there once a year just to kind of check up on them and see if any of my little buddies are still there. And he said a lot of them are. They've now confirmed that the same ball can live for at least five to six years. So... These, these things are really cool and kind of frightening when you start to think about like, oh, yeah, maybe they are communicating somehow. And maybe this is a real a herd that's going to multiply like tribbles and come and get us. I don't know. And I mean, they're very like light, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Small pieces of moss, too. Yeah. They're just like. Yeah, that's wild. Things. So clearly whatever whatever motion they're capable of with the physics of their roots and stuff, they're able to move themselves around the surface of the glacier. Are these moss at all related to like the mushroom family? Because I know that the mushroom family kind of does some cool things in terms of like underground massive systems behaving as like a single organism, even if they look spread out 
or divided. Yeah, I don't know. They didn't say there was any. I mean, they noted it's a bunch of different species. So it almost seems like this is what glacier behavior looks like when you put Mm. any number of a bunch of mosses in an environment where there is no rocks to sort of attach to. There's really nothing substantial to stick with. They just say, okay, we'll just ball up and stick to ourselves. Ah, I see. Yeah. They're bored. uh, (laughs) And lonely. They just want some company. Yeah. And, you know, pretty soon they'll be ambulatory and uh, we'll have like the big moss ent walking towards us out of the ice. (laughs) (laughs) That's not frightening at all. Uh, but they're so cute. They are. They really are. And and they have pictures of them. And they it's sad. They cut one in half so you can see the root system going all the way through the ball and the moss on the outside. But it's moss. It probably still lived, I bet. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this article comes from Gizmodo. The title is, This Lickable Screen Can Recreate <laughs> Almost Any Taste or Flavor Without Eating Food. Nope. Mm-mm. It's like Willy Wonka. <laughs> it's the wallpaper. How do you disinfect it? Yeah, this is not something I would uh, ever think that you should share with somebody else (laughs) in in any way, especially nowadays. Uh, But this device is kind of interesting looking. I'll describe it real quick before jumping into what they say about it. It's kind of like a handheld copper rod that has a plastic bit with five little nodules sticking out of it. These kind of like places where gel will come out of. And that's what sends the flavor to your taste receptors, essentially. So it's like a flavor wand? (laughs) Like you're licking a substance, though. Like if you're getting gel in there, like it sounds like you're licking something. It's just like a very thin sheen of goo. Yeah, exactly. And so it is pretty much a flavor one. I think that's a great way to describe (laughs) it. So the article talks about how we used to think that the tongue, you know, had different regions for tasting sweet and sour, salty and bitter flavors. Mm -hmm. But now we know that the distribution is actually more evenly spread out across the tongue and that the fifth flavor, umami, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the savory flavor often associated with meat, uh, plays a big part in our enjoyment of food. And that's a big part of how this device works, because it's actually inspired by how easily our eyes can be tricked into seeing that technically something doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like when we look at a computer screen or a TV screen, you're really just looking at microscopic pixels Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. made up of red, green and blue elements that combine in varying intensities to create these full color images. So the creator of this device, which is called a Norimaki synthesizer, Mm -hmm. the creator is named Home Miyashita. And Miyashita wondered if a similar approach could be used to trick the tongue. And that's why Norimaki Synthesizer is also referred to as a taste display, uh, because it's inspired (laughs) by the RGB pixel idea. It's a cathode ray tongue. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So there have been a lot of attempts, actually, to artificially simulate tastes on the tongue, but they tend to focus on a specific taste or flavor or enhancing one, like boosting how salty something tastes without having to actually add more salt. Mm. But uh, the Norimaki synthesizer is special in that it uses five different gels in these long tubes to trigger the five different tastes when they make contact with the human tongue. So for sweet, there's glycine. For acidic, there's citric acid. For salty, it's sodium chloride. For bitter, you've got magnesium chloride. And for savory umami, you've got glutamic sodium. So it essentially uses the chemicals that are the flavors as the flavors. Mm -hmm. But what's neat is that the device can actually create these specific flavors by mixing the taste together in specific amounts and intensities, just like RGB pixels on a screen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, have people tested it? Are they saying it tastes like a steak as opposed to just a mix of chemicals? Apparently it does. Yeah. So it says that based on what flavors they subtract or remove, 
it's able to make specific flavor profiles that they've been able to find. Here, the article talks a little bit more theoretically, where the <laughs> idea is that eventually, you know, you could use it to simulate the taste of like chocolate or drinking a milkshake or whatnot. But they did say that they are actually able to get users to experience the flavor of gummy candy all the way to like sushi without having hmm. to place a single item of food in their mouths. Oh, so they are so clearly weird. able to target specific types of flavors that people are used to and expect. They could even take this device and easily shrink it down to like the size of a vape so that your norimaki synthesizing to replace eating food that actually has calories and oh substance. Right. You could lick chocolate all day and then quick throw back your broccoli smoothie and have your healthy <laughs> yeah. and your unhealthy at the same time. Well, what is the gel suspension that each of these like flavor compounds is mixed into as like a medium? Because surely overdosing on that is not going to be any better than just eating four platters of sushi. Yeah, absolutely. So they actually talk about how uh, these color-coded gels are made from agar formed in the shape of long tubes, okay. and the copper foil around the device is actually used to facilitate a technique known as electrophoresis, and that is a process that moves molecules in a gel when an electrical current is applied, which allows it to be sorted based on the size of pores in the gel. Okay. I think that means essentially that it causes the ingredients to move away from the end that's touching the tongue. So essentially they're using this electrical conductivity to move the flavors out. So right. you're kind of getting a limited amount or like a little drip of each flavor is the way I interpreted the article. But you could easily overdose on umami just like <laughs> anything else if you really want to. Well, and I happen to know this is kind of sad, but I, I do know that agar is actually a carb. So I, I think it's not going to take off with the weight loss people because it's not, it's not <laughs> keto. I'm telling you, you couldn't be licking that thing all day. No, I don't think any of this kind of adheres to any kind of standardized for human consumption <laughs> diet. But I mean, like when we start getting into full body VR simulations. Oh, yeah. To add to the experience. Exactly. Like if I wanted to go to like a super fancy restaurant in fake life and virtual world, that could be a thing. Or you could do it to like do more world building because other planets will not smell or taste the same way. That's, That's wild. Right. You, you got to eat your astronaut paste, but. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pause and let's see what some future iterations of this look like. Yeah, you're holding out hope, yeah. you're saying. It might get it might get usable. <laughs> you know, I mean, the potential for not only creating flavors that already exist or have registered. I wonder what this could do to kind of find or create other flavors that in turn start to inspire recipes using real food on the planet. Oh, yeah. Well, like you could patent like boutique flavors like that. It could <gasps> become a whole thing. Taste of Vulcan Puck. <laughs> <laughs> Patented. All right, you've convinced me yeah. now. I'm on board. Well, <laughs> I'll get I'll get my own little licky vape pen, and we'll we'll have a fancy meal. Dating will never be the same. Oh, oh no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, next link. <laughs> next next link. link. Well, let's keep talking about dating and chemicals, shall we? <laughs> Sounds good. I'm not. Perfect. I'm not done. Uh, this article is from National Geographic. It's by Liz Langley, and it's called How Pheromones Help Bee Queens Rule and Lemurs Flirt. Um, so it's basically just kind of a nice overview about pheromones. Have you guys ever been conscious of being affected by pheromones in your own world or life? 
I don't know if I would yes. call them pheromones. Like, I'm definitely smell sensitive, but I it, like deodorants work just as well as human smell. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> you think you have way? Yeah. For me, there's been a few instances in my life where I've just gotten hit with, um, I guess, the musk is how <laughs> right. the only way I know how to describe yep. it. Mm-hmm. But like, and just feeling like, wow, like that smell, there's something about it that just like goes inside you. And I assume that's pheromones, you know? Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and they're not designed to be truly detectable because what makes a pheromone different than just like any kind of normal organism off-gassing to use a non-scientific term <laughs> is that a pheromone <laughs> is a signal that has evolved from the point of view of the sender. So for example, you know, if a mosquito is tracking down an animal by its smell, the animal's not issuing the scent for its own benefit. So that's not really a pheromone. That's just mosquitoes being little evil things. Mm-hmm. But for like honeybees and things like that, one compound in honeybee pheromones can suppress worker bees from crowning another queen. And it's, so it's issued by a reigning queen. So it can kind of guarantee that monarch rule, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something that has to basically relay a message from an intentional point of view of the sender, even if it's not voluntary, it's just part of their desire. But the history of pheromones and our knowledge of it is really kind of recent. Scientists did not identify the first one until 1959, and it was Bombacol, the scent of the female silkworm moth. Basically, this moth's perfume or pheromones can be carried for miles and eventually a pheromone receptor on a male moth's antenna, he flies upward and he kind of serpentines and zigzags until he hits another and essentially will follow this chemical trail back to the female. And not only that, scent cues like this can also work well underwater. So apparently fish and crustaceans have a highly developed sense of smell, so they're able to detect pheromones. For example, American lobsters, they mate in private dens, and dominant males will telegraph their hierarchy through pheromones in their urine, which attracts (laughs) females to their lair. Yeah. Wow. We've got some manly, manly pee. Men, the underwater <laughs> lobster pee. But on the other hand, mammals have more complicated body chemistry and a more complex set of behaviors. So it's harder to gauge mammalian response to scent cues such as pheromones. They found that some domestic species like pigs, dogs, horses, rats, and mice do respond to scent cues and pheromones. And it's basically that they've got these sensory neurons deep, deep in the nose that signal the brain's limbic system, which is that primitive part of our brain that regulates emotions and memory. So response to pheromones seems to be pretty, you don't even realize that it's happening or that you're having a response to it. You're just actually acting. Mm -hmm. But my favorite part of this article is when they get to the Madagascar ring-tailed lemurs. Mm -hmm. Um, Some scientists have studied pheromones and scent cues in wild animals. And what these male lemurs do is they rub secretions from their wrists and shoulder glands onto their tails and then they waft the scent towards females and they have named this process stink flirting. (laughs) So it's an actual, I mean, it's not just a my body is giving this off from an evolutionary standpoint. They're actively saying, I want to make my tail stink like my wrists. Exactly. Like, you know, the first thing I read about with stink flirting is, oh, we have a name for what teenagers engage in pretty much all the time unintentionally, right? That's right. But, you know, so imagine if teenagers were like rubbing their wrists under their armpits and then just kind of putting it all over their necks or pulse points or something like that. So this is like the Axe body spray of the lemur world. Like they're they're using (laughs) too much. If you could generate your own. Right, right, right. But what they found is there are 122 distinct compounds in male lemur secretions. Nice. (laughs) 
And researchers at the University of Tokyo recently added to that scent profile because they found three additional chemicals called aldehydes, and these cause females to linger longer around the male's scents. And what's interesting oh. is I recognize the word aldehydes because that's a compound in the perfume and fragrance industry that was kind of discovered around, in, I think, the 50s or 60s because the best known perfume that first used aldehydes was Chanel Number no. 5. Oh, and it's yeah. it's known for having this kind of like fizzy, effervescent kind of a spark smell if a smell could sparkle mm -hmm. so um that probably just kind of lends a little bit more credence to the fact that we've been using musk like way said we have perfumes that actually use animal musk there may be some compounds and this is pure speculation on my part the article does not get into it but <laughs> there may be some kind of compounds that are kind of like cross species or that act as pheromones in a way that you know we still have some work to do to figure out Otherwise, we're just relegated to stink flirting forever. Yeah, I have to say, I've heard of all the perfumes I've ever heard, like a man name as like, a, oh, yes, I have a reaction to that one. Chanel number no. five is is up there. That's it's the one, the that, one right? Yeah. And if you ever get a chance to huh. smell it, it does have this distinct sparkling kind of thing. And you can look up there are huge, you know, forums and databases online that go into different ingredients of perfumes and fragrances. And aldehydes is like a major component family of it. Hmm. But apparently it's in lemur. We're all secretly <laughs> attracted to lemurs is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, or aldehydes. And there may be a way right. for us to hack it, too, because I know that there are some companies that have started manufacturing oxytocin, which is right. you know, a, a hormone. And hormones can obviously act as scent cues as well, right? Like some scientists have found that men considered a female scent more attractive when she's ovulating and therefore the most fertile. Male African elephants apparently go through an annual month-long period of testosterone surge called MUST. It's M-U-S-T-H. But juvenile male elephants will release a scent during the musk period that smells like honey, which signals to other males that they're not a threat. Huh. That's very sweet. Say like, right? No, no, no. I, I smell <laughs> I smell delicious. Don't bother me. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> and of course, we all know about domestic cats and how they have scent glands in their faces and kind of nuzzle the smell onto objects, other animals and people. Apparently, this has a word. It's called bunting. Well, if I see any teenage boys rubbing their face on things, I'll know what they're really up to. <laughs> Just point and scream stink flirt. I there think that will help propagate the knowledge in a way more that more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, it turns out I have a little bit of a theme going on here. I didn't realize it till just now, but I have another <laughs> one about collective behavior in the plant world. This one is from Jordana Sepelowitz at The Atlantic. So collective behavior has been observed in lots of species, of course. And in all cases, there are loners, right? There's the occasional bird who just crashes into the flock. There's ants who refuse to participate in building the anthill. There's uh, always one. Right, exactly. And scientists have generally viewed this as sort of a genetic mistake, right? Because collective behavior almost always gives an evolutionary advantage but random mutations mean, you know, some percentage of a species is always going to be deficient. And that's just part of mutation. You can just accept that you're never going to have everybody doing what you're supposed to be for natural selection. But some new research on slime molds shows that's not the case. There's a species called Dictyostelium discoidium, and it has a peculiar behavior where every cell acts individually until the colony is threatened with starvation. At which point this sort of chemical alarm goes off, like you're talking about pheromones. And each cell starts acting collectively. They all start aggregating into this vertical stalk. So what was once sort of a, you know, puddle of slime mold becomes much more like a mushroom where they build up into the stalk and they sacrifice themselves so that the cells at the top of the stalk can fly off carried by wind or water to a new location where perhaps there's more nutrients, right? 
And oh. it's sort of a given that the ones in the stalk are going to die. This is a, a last ditch, we got to get off the planet kind of behavior from slime molds that is really predictable from this one particular species. And as expected, some cells are loners and they don't participate in the stalk building. But the, <sighs> the key here huh. is that they reasoned that if this loner behavior is sort of a genetic mistake, so to speak, you should expect the same percentage of loner cells, no matter how big or small the slime mold colony is, right? Because it's mm. a genetic rolling of the dice. But mm -hmm. they found that it was not the case. Instead, there was a set number of loners that remained each time. So if it was a big colony, there would only be relatively few loners. But if it was a really small colony, you might actually have more than half the colony remain as loners. What? And wow. the offspring of those loners were no more likely to be loners themselves in later rounds of starvation. So this isn't a genetic thing. And they basically, it indicates, they said, that being a loner is to some degree a choice. Obviously, it's not a cognitive one on the part of the slime mold, but it's based on mm. some sort of evolutionarily defined density of what is the correct amount of loner behavior. And <laughs> so they, 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 you know, they're conjecturing at this point, but they suspect it's a form of hedging your bets, right? The stalk does have its own risks. It could get eaten by a predator or maybe it gets carried off, but it doesn't land anywhere better. And like I said, the stalk can't unstalkify if nutrients miraculously come back to the colony. So at that point, anybody who's left behind is actually going to be the only ones that can save the colony to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, they still aren't really sure what determines what is the correct number of loners or how, of course, these loners figure out, OK, we got enough people on the stalk. I'm going to hang back and be a loner or not. We got plenty of loners. Time for me to get up on the stalk. Uh, but they have since, now that they've determined that this is not a percentages game, there is some sort of decision-making, so to speak, going on. They've observed similar parallels in other collective species, right? So, like, <gasps> another researcher read this paper, and he said, oh, my gosh, you know what? Locusts have a similar collective swarming that only happens when they're threatened. And so now he's going out and trying to count the number of locusts who don't swarm and see if this same sort of decision-making behavior happens in other species. Huh. So either way, it may turn out that, like, if you're a loner human who doesn't like to participate, it may just be because we don't have enough loners. And that, in fact, if there were a ton of loners, you'd be like, nah, that's old and done. I'm going to go join the crowd. Hooray <laughs> <laughs> for the loners. Not so weird after all, except weird, but not weird. That's right. Well, you know, evolutionarily weird, correctly weird, yes. the right quantities. It's almost like the loners actually belong. <gasps> what? Oh. <laughs> quit, quit with your popular kid rhetoric. That's not true. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not get to today. The U.S. is getting shorter as mapmakers race to keep up. A new artificial eye mimics and may outperform human eyes. And the weird American story of why my hometown is underwater. So all that and more can be found on our website. If you'd like to support our podcast and keep us going, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.